0: As was mentioned earlier, what a delightful privilege and joy it is that we are able to assemble and to gather today on this first day of the week and for the express purpose of offering worship unto the only true and living God. As we are assembled for this purpose and on this occasion, certainly a thought or two perhaps might rest on our mind. The family of Edward Spurlock did want me to express to you appreciation for all the help that you extended a few moments ago as uh, as he became ill, and we certainly do hope that things will be much better and easy for him this afternoon. In addition to that, we do want to wish all the fathers a happy Father's Day today. It is that third Sunday in June, and it's that special day in which we recollect and remember and honor those who are the fathers, and we do want to extend that happy wish to you this day. We hope that indeed we can each appreciate the blessedness that comes with home, and in fact, that'll be a part of the lesson this morning. As you also perhaps are aware, we do continue our puzzles, so as you exit the services today, if you have an interest to take one of those as you study 1 Corinthians and Galatians, well, certainly we'll be happy to distribute those, and you can take those and work on those puzzles. The lesson this morning, as you can tell, is entitled Marriage and Home. And for the next few moments, I would invite us to at least think a bit using the Word of God as our guide on some of these features that today, being Father's Day, seem appropriate to at least highlight from the Word of God. It is a great honor to be able to assemble. It is a tremendous honor to be able to gather as we are. As you can see, though, that great honor brings us to this observation. Isn't it interesting that Although the Bible speaks so highly about marriage, speaks so worthily, so exaltedly about that subject, on the other side of that coin, our society so frequently speaks of marriage in a negative light, speaks of it in such a way that for those who are untrained and for those who are uneducated in the things of God, they might in fact come to view marriage in a rather distasteful light in a light that is far less adorned and far less special than the Word of God presents it. In fact, the suggestion, the sadness of all that perhaps is something like this. You and I so quickly in our mind can race to passages in which the Bible is so lovingly described. But yet think about some of the conversations and some of the presentations in which you more frequently hear marriage described. Quite often, we're in circumstances in which we hear about its problems. We are faced with matters that are issues that touch it. There are circumstances in which we more often hear about divorce and remarriage as opposed to marriage itself. All of that, again, might well lead one to think that marriage is not nearly the exalted and special thing that the Bible says that it is. It is. I would hope today we can swing that pendulum, at least for the next half hour or so, back to the direction of appreciating the special character in which we find it in the Word of God and remind ourselves of the glorious honor and blessing that comes from that described and ordained feature called marriage. As you can see at the bottom of that slide, it seems fitting on Father's Day maybe to turn our attention back to that subject and that we shall strive to do Over the next few moments this morning, perhaps a place to begin would be the very text that was read for us earlier. As we found reading, Greg did for us from Genesis, the second chapter, I would invite you to go back to that location with me, visualizing the events that occurred there and highlighting in it the special and marvelous nature of what came to pass that day. It was the sixth day of God's creative efforts. After creating all these other things about Him, all these other things that were descriptive of this universe and the matters contained in it, day number six, even the land animals already earlier that day had come to be. Things like dinosaurs and cows and so on down the line. But we notice that God made an observation. The observation was this. As He appreciated the nature of what had been created and fashioned, One thing remained. We notice He created mankind. And Paul, in a later commentary in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, expressly said Adam was the first man. It's not as if there was a long process of evolution that finally led to him. He was the first one. And this first man, Adam, how special he was. He, of course, would become the first father, would he not? In, In Among the human family, at least. And we notice that this fatherhood maybe begins by appreciating this. You notice that Adam, though the first man he was, God made this observation in Genesis 2.18. There he says, It's not good that the man should be alone. A companion for Adam had not been found. The animals that existed upon the earth, the various features about the inanimate world about him, they were no suitable companion. God's language was very specific. I will make him a helpmeet for him. And that language reminds us, doesn't it, about the fact that that which God was about to make, this one that he was about to fashion, was a helper for him. And so it was in the verses that followed that that deep sleep came upon Adam from him as a part of his side was taken, a rib, and from that rib a woman was fashioned and made And that brought us to the lesson text of verse 23 and 24. You'll notice Adam speaking first says, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That word woman literally means out of man and we know in fact where it was that word came from. It came from this passage that we just read. She was taken out of man. Adam began by saying, She is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. These two were very different from the animal kingdom. These two, as companions, as helpmeets, were strongly harmonious and unified one with another, being the character of what God had fashioned and made. We notice, in addition to that, a fantastic commonality Adam recognized immediately. He knew that he and she were alike in a, in a number of ways, and they were again far, far removed from what was the animal kingdom. We notice, in fact, among the other things we could appreciate, that these two notice that God fashioned a woman for this man, that in fact from early stages of the Bible helps us see what can be asserted so incorrect and improper about homosexuality. How that we notice that God made a woman for the man, not another man. And as he fashioned, Eve, of course, for Adam. These two, as they were that strong, basic component of that first home. Isn't it true that in that description we see this? Adam, as he made reference to it, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. The marvelous unity described in the home you notice that God brought her to him. After he had taken that rib, fashioned that woman, the text tells us God brought her to the man. And then verse number 24, God now speaking says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. As we find these descriptions, as we find from the early stages in time, back as far as Genesis chapter 2, Isn't it fascinating that now we find that these are said to be very good? At the close of day number 6, in Genesis 1 verse 31, God now describing the matter says it was very good. Apparently, the creation of the woman, the bringing her to the man, the formality of the home, now all was very good. Sin had not yet entered the world. The darkness and the encumbering power of it had not crossed the stage of the human scene. It was very good. The goodness brings us to the bottom point on that slide. The home, the blessed home as described in the Word of God is no scientific accident. It was not the genius, if you please, of some scholars in the ancient era. It was not the genesis, if you will, of what man came up with. I realize there are many supposed scholars and other intellectuals who try to find explanations in the matter of evolution for everything there is, but they fail miserably when they come to think about the character of these opening two chapters of Genesis. In fact, as we think about the evolution of man, even science alone tells us that it is, in fact, an impossible matter to think about the nature of that evolution. But yet here we would have evolutionists try to convince us that there needed to be the evolution of two, both the man and the woman at the same time. The evolution of one of them apart from the other would do no good. There could be no procreation of the species. If one of them alone its evolution is fantastically impossible, what about two? Utter nonsense, isn't it? And so it is, we find God's description, how that He put in place the marvelous matter that you and I call the home, and that He describes throughout the concourse of His Word. This home and the description of it brings us to the next consideration. Let's speak more, using again the Bible as a helpful matter about this issue that has been presented as marriage. He brought the woman to the man. God joined them in this union termed marriage. We know that that was what was described because centuries later in Matthew 19, when the Pharisees approached our Savior with question about marriage, He turned them back to this passage. He said, have you not read? And He quoted a part of Genesis chapter 2. This was a marriage. Although the word marriage doesn't appear here, that's what it was. For the Lord said so. And as we then reflect upon that marriage, what an amazing union we find from that point forward as in the mind of God it was. Described in such beautiful character, highlighted in marvelous the marvelous nature of it. As you can see at the top of that slide, it involves a commitment on the part of that man and that woman. That's in fact a very part of what the Lord uttered in Matthew 19. What therefore God had joined together, let not man put asunder a commitment one to the other, lasting throughout the life that God should give them. That statement of Romans 7 verses 2 and 3 highlights that that marriage bond is to last until the time of death. It is to last until and only at that time can one or the other, in fact, remarry upon the passing away of the other, given the nature of God's first intended law. That exception that brings in fornication to the cause is found in a passage in Matthew 19, of course. But we find on this occasion that this intent, this lovely union that's not to be so easily disbanded, so easily set aside, it's to be a marriage that Adam described using the word cleave. A man cleaving to his wife. That word cleave, you can see, it means to cling to. It means to grasp. It means to hold tightly. That's the very opposite of the word used, leave, that has reference to one's parents, one's other family ties. In no way is that to be interpreted as meaning one ignores family, one forgets dad and mom completely, but it means one's first and foremost devotion is now for another. It is this wife, it is this husband that now is to be the one clung to. That verb to cling, as you can see, in Genesis 2.24, although that same Hebrew word is used in a different place, in many places, in fact, one interesting occurrence is in Ruth chapter 1. Admittedly, it's a very different description, but isn't it so very touching? You recall the scene with me. The men of that family had died. Here was Naomi with her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. We recall that she had made the determination to go back to her homeland. And in fact, Ruth intended to go, but there were some interesting words shared. Naomi encouraged Ruth not to go. You stay here with your people. And yet, in we notice in verses 15 and 16 of that chapter, Ruth had these words to say, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following thee, For where thou shalt go, I will go. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. And where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. And may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death, part thee and me. Those words of commitment, those words of devotion and dedication to, in that case, her mother-in-law, that she would be there to support her even in older age. She would be there for her even in difficult times. Sometimes that same quotation is used in marriage ceremonies today in which each pledges to one another that degree of dedication, devotion, and love. It is for those kind of reasons that we come to see how sweet it is to appreciate love that's like that. This overwhelming, this extraordinary kind of dedication in which one pledges to another in sickness and in health. Do you notice oftentimes if a person is selfish, when times of sickness come, then there is a fleeing. There is a removal of the circumstance. But yet even in times of sickness and even in times of celebration, even in times of hardship, they pledge to one another their mutual fidelity, their mutual love, their mutual companionship. In the Bible, marriage is spoken of then as a very good thing. Far different than this negative way in which the world views it. Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing, to quote Proverbs 18 verse 22. One chapter later in Proverbs nineteen fourteen we find another recollection and reminiscence in which marriage is lifted to an exalted state. A few other verses would read like this. Wasn't it true that the blessed Savior Himself graced the presence of a marriage in John chapter 2? This marriage feast in which two unnamed individuals were married, and yet the Lord and His, His, His apostles, at least some of them were there. The Lord's mother Mary was there. We notice that this gave a divine approval and appreciation for the special character, of course, of marriage. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse number 5, the powerful observation is made. Do not the apostles of the Lord have the right to marry, to lead about a wife who is a believer? We know Peter was married, for the Lord healed his mother-in-law. We understand from that text in 1 Corinthians 9 that apparently a number of the apostles were married men. Isn't it interesting then to notice in that first century era, when so often women were looked upon in far less exalted character today, still the Lord appreciated a number of His apostles were married men. It is in light of that character of marriage, we appreciate that Paul lifted it highly in First Timothy 5 verse 14. Speaking there of the exalted character of those who had been married and of course would continue to enter into that blessed union, As you can see near the bottom of that slide, the honor of marriage highlighted in a very succinct verse in Hebrews 13, 4. Marriage, the writer said, is honorable in all. Marriage is honorable in all. We should then encourage our youngsters to appreciate the honor that is being married as God would have it to be. Marriage is described in language so far removed from the negative, distasteful light that our government Quite often, our associates and finds in newspapers, it looks so distasteful there. But it isn't so in the Bible. In fact, we understand, as you can see at the bottom of that slide, that it was an evil thing. When Paul foretold the fact that there was going to come a time when some would forbid to marry, and Paul was careful in saying that such an idea is in fact of the devil... It is Satan who would, in fact, discourage a godly marriage. It is the devil that would lead one and try to preach the true or the, the falsehood that it's not a good thing to marry. It is true, in light of all of that, that our study of this issue of marriage and its honor brings us to children. To say that a man is a father is, of course, to say that there is at least one child that's his. And what might we say from the Bible about the nature of children as it relates to fatherhood? Children, as you can see at the top of that slide, make no mistake about it. Mankind has himself often muddied the waters, if you will, on that subject as well, trying to talk about children, at least in some circles, as being unwanted. Children as being, in fact, that which is not desired. It so often seems that individuals lack the pleasure of conception that produces them but are not as excited about the f- consequence thereof. Such a thing is so far against the teaching of the Word of God. We understand here, Psalm 127, verse number 3, children are an heritage of the Lord. Do we believe that? Frankly, as a society, many do not. Frankly, as the world at large, many do not. But yet, the inspired writer, the psalmist of old, stated by inspiration, children are in heritage of the Lord. Two verses later, happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. It should be a proud thing to be a dad. It should be an honorable estate to be a father. And I know I speak before many today who feel that very way. You're thankful for your children. You love them. In fact, you would do anything for them. You more than anything else want to see them being good Christian sons and daughters and to grow up to be good Christian citizen men and women. You want to see them more than anything else know the God of heaven. As we noticed some two weeks ago in a lesson taken from First Chronicles, on that occasion in the 29th chapter of that book, David praying for his son near the close of David's own life. The thoughts that most carefully rested on his mind was that his son Solomon would keep God's commandments. That he would love the Lord and follow Him all the days of his life. That's what that dad wanted. And I know that's what those want today before whom I stand. You want your children to appreciate a life in which they are not in need in physical things. None of us want to see them suffer that way. But even higher than that, we want to see them Christians loving the Lord, faithful to the church, faithful to the things that God has revealed, and ultimately living a life of peace in that regard. So too, as we think about children that way, that brings us back to the home where that dad and mom are. The father has a tremendous role to play in making that home as God would have it to be, a home in which things are tuned to the frequency of God a home in which characteristics associated with godliness are lifted to a high regime and are exalted and magnified. So often the world, of course, sings a different tune, encourages a different way, highlights a different matter. But yet the Father has as one of His duties to make sure that the thoughts of God aren't far from the minds of His wife, Himself, and His children, to make sure that the things of the Bible are not far removed from those daily activities of life. And thus, with regard to home, what a great environment it is to be reared in a home like that. There will be times when things aren't always pleasant, for dad and mom will say no. There will be times they will forbid certain things, certain practices, certain ways, but in finality give 15 to 20 years to pass and that child If he or she is wise, we'll be so thankful, so thankful for parents like that and for a home like that. As we then reflect for a few moments on that kind of home, look about the middle of that slide as some of the orders that have been given in the Word of God to fathers and to mothers. As we think about orchestrating a home like we've just described, that kind of home does not occur by accident. And it doesn't occur by happenstance. It'll occur only when the diligent and dedicated efforts of the parents make it so through, of course, the blessing of God. And so it is that some orders are given to mothers, to wives. They're told, love your husband. They're told, love your children. And that word love is, of course, used in such a powerful and directed way. Love them. To fathers... First, love your wife. Love her. In Ephesians 5.25, a kind of love compared to the love Jesus had for His church. One of the best things, fathers, you and I can do in order to make a home as it ought to be is to start by loving that woman that's our wife. If we will love her, that son will learn that he should grow up to love his wife that way. And he will, if you're a daughter, you'll learn that your husband should love you that way. You will learn, of course, that that bedrock foundation will be a thoroughfare that will allow you to emerge victorious over the hardships, afflictions, and oppressions of life. That you will have a shoulder on which you can lean through all the difficulties of the days. In addition, as you look at these things, we find an example in Noah, him, or rather, in Abraham himself. In Genesis 18, verse 19, God had something amazing to say about him. I'm sure any father, any father upon reflecting on a verse like that one would be charged and challenged in the same way. God, speaking of Abraham, said, I know that he will command his family, his children, after me. I suppose it could well be said that if There wouldn't be many things better to be put on a tombstone than that. He led his family. He led his children, his wife, after God. If that could be said, I suppose it would almost be well to say that would be enough. For those reasons, I suspect that we notice some orders, some commandments are given to children. Children, you're told to honor your father and mother. Even in the Old Testament, that was commanded. In Exodus 20 verse 12, that was one of the Ten Commandments, commandment number 5. But in the New Testament, Paul quoted that verbatim in Ephesians 6 verses, verses 1 through 3. Obey your parents. In verse 2, honor them. As you obey your parents, especially if those parents are leading you in the way of godliness... If they're leading you along the pathway that would try to highlight in your mind a thought of the importance of eternity and being right with God, appreciate them, respect them, honor them, and love them. Obey what they command of you. As you realize that kind of obedience, I assure you that as you grow up, ultimately you will appreciate and respect them all the more for it. You'll understand as you come to maturity that there is a world in which many parents don't live like that. They don't love their children that way. They don't give them commandments that lead to their eternal well-being. They're more concerned in the here and now. And in so doing, the final state turns up so negative. What a thought it would be on the Day of Judgment. To show up there and, of course, all nations therein gathered, Matthew 25, 32. Every person and individual there, Romans 14, 12. That means your parents and mine will be there. Your children and mine will be there. The tragedy of it all, what if your children aren't there? What if they're on the left and you're on the right? Too horrible to contemplate. Too sad to even give much thought to now. We ought to live in such a way that all of us are on the right. Our parents, our children, ourselves, of course. That family structure highlighted then in these various passages that we've referenced bring us to some concluding thoughts highlighted about home. Home is a sweet thought to any dad. It's a sweet thought to, I suppose, any child too, of course, that has reached a point of appreciating what that's all about. An extraordinary place of encouragement and support and love. The world is so often such a place as the winds of hardship blow about us. Things can be so hard at work, in the community, the nightly news is a disaster. We so often see that which is so filled with ungodliness, iniquity, and sin. We need a fortress a bulwark, if you will, in which we can come to a place where that stuff is kept at least at bay for a while. A home can be that kind of place. As we all know, I suppose, James Watkins is well known for describing a place called paradise. And he even gave the address down, of course, near McMinnville. He called the place where he lived, he and Foy, his wife, and where their children were raised, he called it paradise on earth. And he did that, of course, knowing full well that we as parents should strive to make such a place for ourselves and our children. This place is a place of training. It's a place in which the children learn, can be guided in the ways of rightfulness, but even we as parents can be reminded by the innocence and purity of a child how sweet a place that home can even itself be. We are given some glimpses in the Bible of a few homes such as that home in which Jesus was raised. We aren't told much, admittedly, about the early life of Christ, but we are reminded that it was a place in which the Lord was obedient to His parents. He stated that, of course, Himself in Luke chapter 2, verses 49 and 50. And so we notice obedience highlighted Jesus in His growing up years. We notice furthermore in verse 52 of that chapter, Luke chapter 2, it was there said of the Master, Jesus, that He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. As He grew socially, emotionally, physically, all of that, of course, involved growth spiritually as well. And you and I as fathers, as mothers alike, can be excited when we see our children take an interest in the Bible. They learn its verses, they're conversant with what the Scriptures teach. As you can see in light of that, we notice that this home is a place, as you can see near the bottom or middle of that slide, where there can be matters of difference. I'm reminded of one of the descriptions about the home in which Jesus grew up. Remember, the time came he had brothers and sisters. Joseph and Mary had had children we, in fact, see four of them named in Matthew 13, verses 55 and following. But later in John chapter 7, verse 5, it said His brothers did not believe in Him. Here was a Son of God, their own brother, and they didn't believe in Him to be the Messiah. But yet later on when He was crucified, and in the years that followed thereafter, in fact, it seems as if many of them became His greatest followers. In those early years, I wonder how they reacted to their to Jesus. They didn't believe in Him. Did they insult Him? Did they call Him names? Did they revile Him? At the very least, the text says they did not believe in Him. May I suggest to you that you and I then should be thankful among the things of life for a home in which a unity, a unison, a loving c- character of companionship is there to be found. One might even use that word camaraderie. Ephesians 5 verse 20 says that the thankfulness should emanate from our heart even toward all things and surely that would include the kind of family that we have described to this point. John the Baptist had believing, faithful parents. In Luke 1 verse 6, they're said to be blameless. Youngsters, be thankful for parents who try to live a godly life. They're not going to be popular, I assure you. Your parents won't be the most popular people at school if they try to live godly, but you be thankful for them. You understand that their intent is not popularity and fame here, but popularity with the one that matters the most. The Father in heaven is who they want to please and serve. You'll notice that kind of statement brings us to Timothy. Timothy had a faithful mother and a faithful grandmother. 2 Timothy 1 verse 5 their names being Lois and Eunice. As those women were mentioned, think about the impact they ultimately had on eternity. We don't know how many individuals obeyed the gospel as a result of Timothy's preaching, but it certainly seems it would have been many. Those two women, by the fact they reared a godly son, impacted so many throughout eternity. May you and I as fathers and as mothers be thankful for the opportunity given to us to serve in that capacity, to steer a precious young soul through life ultimately to the place in which its ultimate father would find pleasing. And so it is at the bottom of that slide what a compliment it is to think about the home here as a foretaste of the heavenly home beyond. Jesus said in John 14, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That kind of place is described in the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 2. And there, this sweet home is a place in which where our Heavenly Father is there reigning in royal splendor. And Jesus, of course, reigns along with Him. And you and I have the privilege of reigning through it all eternity along with Him if we will live faithfully until death. Today, as we then think about marriage and home, our thoughts, in summary, can I suppose be concluded like this... We studied somewhat about Genesis chapter 2 verses 23 and 24 and we highlighted the blessedness of home, the character of marriage, and the loveliness of how the Bible describes these things. Although it is so different than the world, the Bible is right. And the world is the one that has clouded viewpoint, misled appreciation and information that's not complete. Today, young people, be mindful of finding a godly spouse. A man or woman, as the case may be, who can help you go to heaven. Someone who can be there as a rock to lean on through this life, not because they themselves are the strong ones, but because they lean on the one who is strong. And they can help guide you to the point where you can ultimately, on the day of judgment, stand with smiling face and know that the one standing by your side, Jesus the Savior, is the one who is in the heart of both you and your spouse all along. Today, if we could perhaps help anybody in your response to the gospel. To be a Christian is the first order of business to being a good spouse. You need to be dedicated to the Lord first. And then you can find someone with a dedication to the Lord as you've got. The plan of salvation involves you believing with all your heart that Christ is the Son of God and He demanded that. Mark Mark 16, verse 16. Repent of the sins in your life. Again, demanded in Acts 2.38. Confess the name of Christ as the Son of God, demanded in Romans 10 verses 9 and 10, and be baptized for the remission of sins, an absolute requirement of Acts 2.38. If we could help you in that light today, may I suggest to you it will be a life and eternity changing event for you. If you have become a member of the body of Christ, you know, know what it was like, but those days are a distant memory. You haven't lived faithfully, You have brought shame and disgrace and reproach upon you, upon Christ, upon the church, because of things others know you've done and said and the way you've lived. Come back to your first love today. This day, the 16th of June, 2013, no better day could there be than this one. If we could pray for sins to be forgiven in your life, why not come forward in just a moment and let us do that? If any need that we've stated could be that one that matches your life, don't wait another moment. Come even now while together we stand and sing the selected song.